The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. We have a great show today. Bargo Livesey is back. She's here to talk about her book, The Hidden Machinery, Essays on Writing. Folks, this is <laughs> this is live for someone like me who loves literature and wants literature to matter. That's my deal. Okay, that's my secret. I just want literature to matter. I want it to mean something. And this book helps me see that it does, and how it does what it does. It's like 300 pages of crack cocaine, literary crack. You ingest it, and the brain is suddenly on high alert. I thought I might have a heart attack reading this book. (laughs) Just kidding. Of course, exaggerating, it's a wonderful book. It helps you see new things about the books that you know and love, or maybe some that you haven't encountered yet. It takes all these writers and books and feeds them into the perceptive mind of a career novelist, an excellent novelist and writer, Margot Livesey. Let me give you a taste of the book's contents. I'll leaf through it as if we're here in a virtual bookstore. But first, let's read an email from a listener to set the stage. Ah, oh, excuse me. We have a someone knocking at the door here at the studio. Who's... Whoa. Who is... Hello. This is Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, dear. Edgar. That sound you hear. Bricks. Bricks. Bricks being placed one by one in a wall not six inches from my person. A wall. Bricks set by my enemy, Fortunato. I am to be entombed, it seems. Oh, poor Edgar. A pity, really. Yes, indeed. I have so much more to give. (laughs) Indeed you do. If only my saviour, that noble whelp Jack Wilson, would come (laughs) to my rescue. I don't know how noble the whelp is. outside of Fortunato's castle, attempting to bribe the footman. But I fear he lacks sufficient funds. (sighs) Oh, won't you help him? You hard-hearted book lover. Won't you help him and me? Oh. Yes, dear listener, I would not call you a hard-hearted book lover. Then again, what do I know? A ignoble whelp. <laughs> dear Lord, poor Edgar. We need to help Edgar. Edgar showed up last time we had Margot on the show, didn't he? I think he was... Part of the surprise bonus question. Well, now he's got Fortunato, not six inches from his person. <laughs> Gar, Gar, who wrote that that one for Edgar, the promo? Who was the intern five? In, don't they have names, Gar? The interns? They, they... Oh, I said that. Okay, so that's my producer, Gar. He's off mic. He's just informed me that the interns do have names 
He just doesn't know what they are. Gar, <laughs> I assumed that they actually had names. I mean, what kind of, what kind of people don't? Ones we grow in the lab? <laughs> okay, so intern five then. Is he here or she? Is it one of the... Let's, let's give her a promotion. That was excellent. Not six inches from my person. That really cracks me up. <laughs> What's your... Well, I don't know. I think we could probably come up with something. What's your title, Gar? Assistant producer? Okay. Let's make intern five an assistant producer. That should be... We could use another one of those, right? Right, Gar? Ah, <laughs> uh, poor Gar. How do we ever put this show together? That's Gar registering some disapproval. Okay, anyway, Edgar needs our help. He's being entombed with seconds to spare and only enough energy to drag himself to our studio door and somehow knock and somehow bring the scraping noises inside the studio. Maybe Intern 5 is a magical realist. In any case, you can help the show by heading on over to patreon.com literature and signing up to be a patron, either through a PayPal account or a credit card. It's a monthly recurring donation, or you can kick in with a one-time donation by going to historyofliterature.com show and buying Jack a virtual coffee. My thanks to all my patrons, and this week, a special shout-out to new Patreon, Mary, and to the several people who increased their donation size, which is a very much appreciated as well. Okay, so let's tee this up. This was a great bit of coincidence. I was working on the show, literally, editing the interview with Margot, and this email came in. Subject, History of Literature. Good morning, Jack. I just wanted to say hi and thanks. I discovered your podcast while on deployment in Afghanistan. Thanks for keeping me company on many mornings while I got ready for work and many more nights while I decompressed from work. Because of your inspiration, I vowed to take my own writing to the next level, and I have a semifinalist standing with a draft screenplay, and I've signed up for the first of many writing courses. My first book is now complete, and at least three others in various stages of draft. Thanks for your service, and keep up the great discussions, Jay. How wonderful and amazing that is. I'm, I was astounded when I got that email. Deployment in Afghanistan... What a difficult job that is, and what a, a great place for literature to find its way in, to be a part of the experience. I'm so glad that Jay found the podcast and was able to stretch her mind or maybe calm her mind, maybe both, even in the midst of great pressure and chaos and danger. I'm honored. I'm just moved beyond words that Jay is back home safe now, and has continued her own writing, and I wish her all the best. We'll have a surprise for Jay, too, which I'll announce at the end of the show. So, let's talk about the Livesey book, my fix, my literary fix. Let me run through the table of contents. First chapter, The Hidden Machinery, Writing the Life, Shaping the Novel. This is the chapter that won me over. I'll ask her about this in the interview. She talks about her early writing and how she learned what makes fiction work. That's first of all, and that's A, how fiction... <laughs> Let me start over. 
She learned what makes fiction work, A, and B, how novels work. Two separate things. Not easy. Not easy to go from characters and scenes and, and short sketches into a working novel. Next, next chapter, Mrs. Turpin reads the stars, creating characters who walk off the page. Another great one. Chapter three, nothing but himself, embracing Jane Austen's second chances. Chapter four, hush, shut up, please be quiet, letting our characters tell and show. That debate, the show versus tell debate, if that's the right word, that's advice that's so often applied and misapplied and construed and misconstrued and taken and mistaken, what else, used and misused, quoted and misquoted, understood and misunderstood, a lot of misses. How appropriate. Missed. How about that? Missed and and dismissed and misdismissed. Anthropied and misanthropied. Where do we go with this? Next chapter. Even one day. Considering aesthetics with Virginia Woolf. There are chapters here on Flaubert, on Shakespeare for writers, lessons you can learn from Shakespeare, and a tour de force chapter at the end. Navigating the Shoals of Research which simply must be read. This book is highly recommended. Five and a half stars from Jack Wilson on his scale of one to four. And the chapters, the chapters, if you've noticed, they tend to focus on the heavyweights, Flaubert, Shakespeare, Virginia Woolf, but there are references all over the place to all kinds of great writers and writing. We have Charles Baxter and Juno Diaz and, and many others. Alice Monroe. William Trevor. Here's the thing about books, about writing. I read a lot of these because I love literature and I love seeing how it works. Peeking Under the Hood. Hidden Machinery. That title is so perfect for me. Hidden Machinery by Margot Livesey. Friend of the show. You might as well call it A Book for Jack Wilson. But there's also part of me that cannot bear to read books like this. I'm often disappointed fling them against the wall as often as not. I hate books that over-prescribe where the authors think they know everything. As soon as you read them, you think, this isn't always true. This is... Why are you Why are you saying this as if it's always true? This isn't. What do you know? I had a teacher once, a bad teacher. I won't mention his name. He was a graduate student who thought he knew more than he did. I was in college. The professor, who I loved kind of let him do more than she probably should have. She should have reined him in. <laughs> she should have deleted a few of his lines. So here's what would happen. We would write our papers and we'd turn them in. And then this guy would go through and come up with a list of mistakes and put them on a sheet of paper and read them in front of the whole class, put them up on the screen, read them in front of the whole class, and mock the mistakes. He he did it anonymously to his credit, but it wasn't much of a disguise because people would raise their hand and argue. Say that's not you're misreading that. That's I think that's I think you're getting that rule wrong. Or they would turn red, would shrink down in their seat, burst into tears once in a while. Otherwise, let people know somehow. Everyone kind of knew who had written what. Which of us had committed the atrocity? Or you had to just sit there 
trying not to turn red while he made fun of you, hoping nobody guessed, and silently stewing, full of self-loathing, embarrassment, shame. Except here was the thing. He was wrong, I would say, 90% of the time. He was full of all these rules that aren't really rules. Like, never start a sentence with and. It's an old school marm's rule. That can be broken. And I can remember one time someone had said, here we go. I just started a sentence with and. That's fine. I can remember one time someone had said, Hamlet is a paragon. And he went through this long thing about how you can only be a paragon of something. And if you use a thesaurus to try to find a big word, you look like a fool and ha ha ha. This person tried to look so smart and instead they looked really stupid and so on and so on and so on. And I sat there feeling terrible for whichever poor soul had written this. And then probably within days, I read a sentence where Virginia Woolf called someone a paragon. A paragon. Full stop. He was a paragon. Period. Not a paragon of something. And then I saw it in other authors too. I don't remember which ones now, but at one point I had a list in my mind. E.M. Forster, Henry James, John Updike, Graham Greene. Every time it came up and I saw that someone was a paragon, period, I thought, screw you, grad student, whose name I don't even remember now. Paragon of. Why don't you learn the rules? You're a paragon of not knowing what you're talking about. Learn the rules. Or, even better, understand that these rules are suggestions. And deliver the rules with some humility. Some sense that maybe you don't have all the answers. I was in a class once where the teacher gave a, a principal... Don't do this. This was a creative writing class. The teacher gave out a principle. Don't do this. I can't even tell you the technique because it will give it away who I'm talking about. But she herself had done that very principle for an entire book. An entire book that was published. Doing the thing that she was now telling us not to do without any irony or self-awareness. It had worked for her. But apparently not for us. She put on her teaching hat, which some people mistake as a pedestal. They think they're climbing to the top of the mountain. There to hand down chiseled commandments. And then... Another sentence I started with, and... And then all the great writers break every single one of the rules at one point or another. Commandments broken. And it works just fine. You know, I'm kind of on a rant now, but I don't care. We'll get to the interview in a minute and it will all be worth it. I promise. Margot Livesey is so awesome. You'll want to listen to it twice. But I'm on my rant now. You know, if you've been listening to the show, how much I value honesty, self-awareness. And there's a story that I bring up a lot. Maybe I've talked about it on the show before. It's about honesty and self-honesty. It's the story of John Lennon, in Hamburg. You know, I'm obsessed with the Beatles. As creative geniuses, as a group, they're dynamic with one another, all of it. I just can't get enough. So there's this story of John Lennon in Hamburg. It's April 1962. He's there with the Beatles. This is before they're famous, but they are getting good. 
John's the leader of the band. But he's on to something good because Paul is a musical genius, a wonderkind, and George is right there with them, hardworking, obsessed guitarist, on the same page musically. They don't have Ringo yet, but they're good. They also have Stuart Sutcliffe in the band. Now, the interesting thing about the dynamic at this point is that George and Paul really look up to John. He's older. Paul especially admires John. He's seeking John's approval. And John recognizes Paul's undeniable talent, sees him as kind of an equal musically. But John has a friend, the guy that he admires, the artist, the painter, Stuart Sutcliffe. So he's brought Stuart into the band, mainly because John liked to hang out with him. Stuart was just learning how to play bass guitar. He's learning, but he's not great. But John likes his style. He admires him. He likes who he is and how he lives. He's impressed by him as a painter. Stuart Sutcliffe is winning prizes as a painter. He's young, 18, 19, 20, that age, when he knows John. And they all meet the super cool German, Astrid, the coolest, maybe the coolest person who's ever lived. She's a photographer. She lives in a room. It's all painted black. She has black furniture. She has foil on the walls and a tree branch hanging from the ceiling. That's her bedroom in 1960. <laughs> She's a photographer. She basically gave them the idea of their haircuts and their early look, the beetle boots and all of that. She took those beautiful black and white photos of them. And she started dating Stuart Sutcliffe, John's friend, and they got engaged. She was in love. And then Stuart tragically died at the age of 21. Dies. And Astrid is devastated. All the Beatles liked Astrid. So they all come around to try to say what they can. Paul and John have both known death. Their mothers died when they were in their teens. And John had also had his beloved Uncle George die. A lot of people died on him, he said. That's what he used to say. I've had a lot of people die on me. And now, his best friend, Stuart. So the Beatles come around to talk to Astrid, to offer their condolences, their sympathy. What can you say? They know she's lost her soulmate, her fiancé. And later, she described Paul and George as being very sweet, trying their best. Paul, in his showman's way, his charming, his effortful charm, and George, in his quiet and thoughtful way. These guys were very young. Paul was 19. George was 18. And then John came and saw her. And he knew she was devastated by the loss, just as he was. And she said something like she didn't know if she could go on living. And John Lennon said to her, well, decide if you want to live or if you don't want to live, but make up your mind and be honest about it. Be honest about it. Not my thoughts and prayers are with you or my condolences in this difficult period or you have my sympathy, but here you are, young, life is ahead of you, you've been dealt this horrible hand. It's awful. Suicide is an option, but don't go on living and not living. Don't be in this twilight. Make up your mind and be honest about it. 
Don't commit suicide because you think you should. Don't go on living if you don't want to. But if you do go on living, don't go halfway either. Be honest about what you want. I'm not sure I could be that direct and that straightforward and frank even now. Maybe when I'm in my 70s or 80s or 90s. But what if she had killed herself? It's brutal directness. But it worked with Astrid and maybe... John knew that it would. She realized that she did want to live and she would have to get through her period of grief as any of us would, as many of us have. But it helped her to know that she honestly wanted to live and it would be dishonest to pretend that she didn't. She wanted, she needed to live and she had to live her life as fully as we should all hope to. And that's what she's done. So, that's my pitch for honesty. And frankly, I look for this honesty in the arts, in music, in visual arts, and especially in literature. And when I don't see it, I get angry. And in writing about writing, even the best authors, even the ones who are most honest in their fiction, will sometimes come up short. They say things that cannot be true if they thought about it even a little. They would realize that, but they're not thinking because they think they've earned some kind of right to say things that aren't necessarily true, and they put on kind of a show for us, a kind of great writer show. They say things they've learned because they want to look smart, because they assume that they have the right to say it, but the honesty is not there. They're not being honest with us because they are not being honest with themselves. This is how I knew I would like Margot Livesey's book. I assumed that I would. I like her. I like her writing. But this is the paragraph that confirmed it. She's talking about her first, edit, her first attempt at a novel, The Oubliette. And this, I talk about this with her, but I didn't want to read the paragraph or ask her to read it because I thought it might be too much for her to have to listen to it, but I'm going to share it with you because I think it's the best paragraph in the book, or at least it's my favorite. This is on page eight, and here she is, young, starting out, full of hope for her writing career. She writes a 400-page book, a novel called The Oubliette, and then she rereads it, and her world crumbles before her eyes. Here's what she writes. It took me several years to understand that the oubliette was bad in more ways than I can easily enumerate. It was simultaneously far-fetched and boring. The characters spoke like Nazis in old British films, their English oddly stiff. The descriptions read as if they came from guidebooks, which, in some cases, they had. I had no sense of pacing, no thought for what sort of unit a chapter could or should be, no understanding of the importance of setting, and perhaps strangest of all, no notion of the crucial role of suspense, especially in longer fiction. James describes his heroine Isabel Archer as riding in a coach. As a reader, I had spent many happy hours riding in various coaches, reaching many marvelous destinations, but I knew almost nothing about how they were built. What made the wheels turn? I had entirely failed to be influenced 
by my years of ardent reading. How was this possible? Ugh, that's the kind of honesty I admire. Now I'm hooked. Now I want to know what she did. How did she go from this failure, this low point, which she sees with such clear eyes now, which she describes so beautifully, how did she go from there to arrive where she did years later as an extremely accomplished novelist, someone at the top of her game? You'll get some hints in the interview, but you'll also need to read the book to find out all the secrets. Oh, it's that honesty that I love. There's a lot of other things to love in this book. She comes up with 16 takeaways from Shakespeare, 16 golden sovereigns that we can pilfer from Shakespeare's treasure trove. There's one that I would add. I'll add a 17th sovereign, if I may. It's my view of Shakespeare and the generosity of his spirit, his human spirit. That's what I most admire in Shakespeare. So many questions about writing can be answered in Shakespeare, not directly, but by understanding his approach, by admiring his example. We've talked about this before a little bit, I think, with Romeo and Juliet in that episode. Everyone marvels at Shakespeare, how he can write such a variety of characters and put them in such dramatic situations, and they all come to life. Some of his more learned contemporaries criticized lines here and there, and Shakespeare had his weaknesses. We talked about some last time, addiction to puns. He also, I think, overused the device of disguised characters, confusion about characters, and so on. But he's still like a Mozart, just astonishingly inventive again and again and again. What's his secret? Here's what I think. Shakespeare inhabits whatever he needs to. He's like the the writerly version of a method actor. His mind inhabits whatever he needs to inhabit at that moment, and he gives it his absolute full attention. He pours all of his humanity into that moment, and he writes it to the absolute fullest of his powers. He thinks it all through completely. He feels whatever he needs to feel. He puts himself exactly in the place of the person who's speaking. His genius is that he can do that. And his facility of language is right there for him to tap into. It's like Tolstoy and his horses. When I unlocked myself, he said, I unlocked everything. If Shakespeare's in the mind of a nurse, that nurse has his full attention for those lines. Then he jumps to a young girl, then the girl's mother. Then the lover, every one of them has a different motive, a different take, a different set of desires, a different background, a different role to play. But Shakespeare gives them all everything they need, all at once, before he moves on. He's like a lamplighter, walking around with a torch, lighting everything up in a burst of flame, knowing exactly where to go, knowing exactly what to do. Now, You could say that this is for authors, that I'm talking to writers here, but I think it's also for readers. Makes us sharper readers to recognize this, to see when a writer is being lazy or conventional or repetitive or when they're moving their characters around like pawns on a chessboard in order to manipulate them and us. We need to look for actual life, actual breathing life, not authors sitting down and trying to be authors and impress us that way. But examples of brilliance, 
where a brilliant person has created something, something artistic, and has inhabited the situation of their creation and has generated a spark or a flame, or sometimes bestowed upon us a roaring volcano that they've given us. They've given us that. They've given us these sparks. That's what I'm searching for always in literature because I learn from it and because it stretches me out. It expands my universe, makes me smarter and more empathetic and better. <laughs> better equipped for life and better. Just just better. <laughs> Some people say literature is an escape and I guess you can call it that because life is often painful, often dreary. Everyone needs escapes now and then. But for me, I don't think of it as an escape from life. I think it is life. It's be here now. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> That's what I want from books. I want to be here now. I don't want to be somewhere else. I want to be here now. That's why I return to Shakespeare. It's why I return to Henry James and Tolstoy and Jane Austen and Proust and Melville and Baldwin and Murakami and Alice Munro and William Trevor and, indeed, to Margot Livesey. My conversation with Margot Livesey after this. Okay, joining me now is novelist and friend of the show, Margot Livesey, who has come back for a repeat performance to discuss her latest work, The Hidden Machinery, Essays on Writing. Margot Livesey, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you again. So I think a lot of people, I know you've been on tour, and I'm guessing that a lot of people have asked you already why you wrote the book, and I'm definitely interested in that. But I also am wondering what you got out of the book. What what did it do for you to write a book like this? I think it did a number of things. It forced me to think quite seriously about my practice as a writer. It mm. forced me to reconsider some of the perhaps slightly facile or lazy thing habits that I might be tending tending towards. Mm. Um, right. As a young writer, you don't have to worry about repetition, but I think as an older writer, you really do, because there is certain material and certain psychic patterns, if you will, that you're drawn back to. So oh. it really helped me to think to think about those things in a right. more, I hope, in a more considered and fruitful fashion. Right. Okay. So when you first said that, I was thinking that you were describing the experience somewhat akin to being a, a doctor who is always telling his patients to exercise more and then realizes that he or she is getting up there in years and needs to exercise more uh, and and follow their own advice. But it sounds like you're talking about something a little bit different. I, I, I had to think about uh, quite a lot about, well, am I, this sounds like really good advice, but am I actually following it? And what can I, what can I do as a writer to to hew more closely to some of my suggestions right. about research or structure or characterization or 
reading more usefully. Yeah, yeah. Have you started writing again since you've... Uh, <laughs> were you, was this like a that departure is, or were you writing fiction all the while you were putting this book together? I, I had the idea that I just that I would be able to keep writing fiction. But at a certain point working on The Hidden Machinery, I just realized that I needed to give it 100% of my concentration. And so there was a period of about 12, 14 months when I just didn't write any fiction, and that seemed so strange to me. Mm. And, yeah. and now I am, and am I following my own advice? I'm, I'm certainly <laughs> trying to. <laughs> Good. Well, I won't ask you too much about it. I, I have a great respect for people who are in the middle of the creative process. I don't want to uh, accidentally interfere with that at all. But I'm wondering about this book, uh, which I actually found to be a great book for readers as well as writers. Was that something you had in mind or is that more of a happy accident? I really hoped that readers would find their way to this book because Reading was how I found my way to writing, and um, I think for many, for many, if not all writers, is the main way they become writers. And um, my one of the first readers for the book was my husband, who's a painter and um, an ardent reader, and I really took on board his responses to things hmm. at various places. Right. Oh, so, interesting. So. Yeah, so no, I'm delighted if if the book reaches reaches readers, and when I'm doing events, certainly, I mean, of course, my audience is partly writers, but there there are always people there who are ardent readers and who just want to talk about the books they love and how they work. Right. Oh, right. That's so interesting, and it's it's so great. I'm glad that you've uh, that it's found that audience because I think it's it's extremely useful for practitioners, but it is great for people who just love literature and, as you said, want to know how it works. So what kind of questions are you getting or what do people, what seems to be resonating the most with the audiences? I, I think for, I think there is a, is a little bit of a division. I think the writers in the audience respond quite strongly to the chapter on, chapters on characterization dialogue, learning from Shakespeare, the, the ones that are more focused on the techniques of fiction. Mm -hmm. um, the readers in the audience respond to reading about Flaubert and Austin and Forster and James um, right. and again Shakespeare to the, to the ones that, are, you know, that begin more with the process of reading and work through that to, to the writing. Right. And they they come into it being familiar with the works and maybe having a kind of love for the works. And do they ever uh, disagree with you or dispute anything that you say, or are they? Readers and writers tend to be quite opinionated people, so right. they are not they are not all just saying, "Oh, Margot, I I entirely agree with you." <laughs> you know, but. But of course, that's part of the dialogue of reading, you know, that we are asking questions. And so it's wonderful to have people. I mean, I, for instance, say at one point that I don't think persuasion is, you know, quite up to the standard of Austin's other novels. And a number of readers weigh in with me passionately about that. Or I right. argue that the beginning of 
to the lighthouse actually asks a great deal of the reader and certain readers again take me to task and say no 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 <laughs> anything for virginia <laughs> right one of the things that i like the best is when you talk about writing that's not successful and i think a lot of us yep. miss that because you know we we might do a deep dive in an author that we really love uh, but then we're already mm -hmm. kind of predisposed to like that particular author and maybe be forgiving. Right. But, you know, most of us, we might read, you know, one or two novels by William Faulkner, and we just get the cream of the crop. You know, with every author, we read their masterpiece, and we maybe don't read their lesser works, or maybe we never read their first draft, or anything like that. And I know that you being in the MFA world, you're reading a lot of drafts, and I'm sure you're reading a lot of your fellow, your colleagues, first drafts and things like that. So you're seeing fiction that for some reason isn't quite working. For the rest of us, we see, you know, fiction that's already fully formed. And I'm wondering, there seems to be so much to learn from seeing fiction that doesn't work. And I'm wondering if that's something you ever seek out to help you understand how novels work, if you're, if you're looking for novels that don't work. What a, what a great question, Jack. Um, I, I do, I mean, I do take, I think, great encouragement from, for instance, seeing that you know, Shakespeare has lesser plays or mm -hmm. knowing that Pride and Prejudice was actually the result of considerable revision, right. um, as was, as was, for instance, E.M. Forster's passage to India. So I, I do look for for those kinds of examples and to see where you can see um, uh, you can see a writer trying to find their way to the material, trying to find the form for the material and not quite getting there. Right. Um, and of course, for writers, it's very painful. None of us want to think that the book we're working on and are in, incredibly enthusiastic about is a rehearsal for something that we're going to write. But in retrospect, I think that does turn out to be the case. Right. It's almost It almost seems like an auto mechanic or something where the people who really understand cars are the ones who get all of the problems, all the engines that don't work, come, you know, rolling into their shop. And it, it gives them a better sense of how everything fits all together than it would be for someone who maybe just sees a smoothly running engine. That, that's a very good analogy because, of course, when a novel or a story is, is working well, it just carries you along and mm -hmm. you don't stop to think, well, how is it doing this? How is it transporting me? How is it working its magic? Yeah. Because you are caught up in that world. Of course, that's what we as, as readers want to be, to be transported. Right. Right. And there also seems like there'd be a danger. I, <laughs> as I was thinking about this, I was recalling this teacher that I had when I was about seven. She, there was a moment where she kind of lost it. She, she grew so exasperated with the class. She just had reached the end of her patience. And she went on this rant about the effect that teaching had had on her. And it was, you know, oh my my, yeah, and it was, uh, you know, my hair is falling out and I'm broke and I'm tired all the time. And, you know, she really had just kind of lost it. And I remember how it ended where she she slammed her hand down on the table and her bracelet cracked 
and it rolled across the table and onto the floor. And then she said, well, there you go. You broke my bracelet. <laughs> and we were all sitting there kind of, kind of stunned. Yeah. But one of the things she said in the middle of that rant was, she said, I used to be a great speller. And now after reading all of your misspelled words, I can no longer spell. And, and thinking about it, it made me wonder as you're reading student work or you're reading your, when you're judging fiction contests and things like that, you're exposed to a lot more lifeless or unsuccessful fiction than I think a lot of people are. And I'm wondering, do you ever worry that that's going to uh, infect you somehow and that you'll, you'll become like my poor teacher, no longer able to spell? <laughs> Breaking, breaking bracelets and <laughs> yeah. ranting at children. Um, that's a, what a great story. Sometimes I do worry about that, and my my solution is is to turn back to some beloved mm. classic to mm -hmm. remind myself of what it's like when a book is really working and I really love it. Um, right. Uh, but no, I do sometimes have that kind of weariness as I, you know, read something and yet again I have to have an opinion about it. And I think what I welcome about the books I admire is in a way I don't have to have an opinion when I read Anna Karenina. Right. You know, my opinion is already formed and I just give myself over to Anna and Kitty and Levin and right. Vronsky. Right. I had heard somewhere that I think it was I hope I have the authors right, but I think it was uh, Balzac used to start every day by reading Sir Walter Scott for a half an hour just to get kind of the the juices flowing and just to get the right... I always think of it as getting the right pace or the right... You know, you talk in your book about the, the argument of show versus tell. And I, I imagine Balzac just sort of making sure he's got the right uh, distance from the material and, and is dipping in at the right place and getting the dialogue kind of right and that he's using a, a kind of flowing novelist like Sir Walter Scott to, to get him in the right frame of mind for his own writing. I didn't know that, um, and it's embarrassing for a Scottish person <laughs> to admit that I have never read even a single volume of Sir Walter Scott, although I own the complete works. Uh, and persistently won't part with them because I think someday I, someday I will turn back to them. But it, it's interesting you're mentioning um, Balzac because Henry James revered Balzac and said he was one of his great masters, which is something I hadn't known before and was surprised to learn. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. I wonder if it was kind of similar. You know, just to sort of tune the engine, as it were, yeah. or tune the piano, maybe. <laughs> but, but no, I, almost every morning before I start work, I do read, and I try to make that reading time not reading that's associated with my, with my teaching, but reading that's just for pleasure and inspiration. Right. Okay, so speaking of manuscripts that are not successful... I could tell you oh, no. the, part, <laughs> the part where I knew I was going to love your book, uh, The Hidden Machinery, which I do love. You know, I read a lot of books like this. I, I read a lot of writing books and, and how-to books. And the thing that really gets me 
that turns me off is when the author seems to have a lot of prescriptions, but doesn't seem to acknowledge alternative points of view or have come to it sort of with the proper, I guess, humility. Um, or, mm-hmm. or maybe it's better to say honesty. That's why it was on page eight of your book where I knew I was going to love it, which was when you described your early novel, The Oubliette. So <laughs> where, so. where were you in life when you wrote The Oubliette? I had graduated from the University of York with a BA in literature and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I was spending the year traveling with my boyfriend of the time, who was a a philosopher and was writing a book on philosophy of science. Mm -hmm. So I began the novel um, partly because watching him write his book was extremely boring. And um, I thought, oh, I can can write a book. I, I, I can write a novel. Right. You've been reading such great novels. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I spent three <laughs> years at university reading you know, most of the great Victorian and early 20th century novels, and I felt amply equipped to write my own. Right. And then what happened? And then, <laughs> and then well, I mean, the good thing was that I did um, become quite disciplined. I did write most days, and uh, I started in mid mid-September, and by the following June, I had 400 pages of made-up people doing made-up things, which was pretty much my definition of a novel at the time. And um, then I reread it. Mm. And uh, that was just a very sad, sad few days. It was, it was torture to reread it. It was so upsetting and humiliating, I think, because, of course, I've written it with great hopes and ambitions and thinking right. I was doing a wonderful job, or if not a wonderful job, at least tolerable. Right. It didn't come to life the way the books that you were reading, like Middlemarch and, and the other classics. It just didn't have that same feel to you. It, it completely didn't. And, you know, I mean, just there were so many problems with it, but I realized that the black marks I had made on the page had entirely failed to convey or, or capture the characters I saw in my imagination. That the dialogue I had given them was just so unlike either life or art that you know the settings were settings in in guidebooks. You know, a description of something in you know that you might read if you were going to visit a, a town or. Um, valley and and on and and on and on and you know the plot was either it was in some places much too obvious and in other places much too subtle Hmm. your first reaction was was to persuade yourself well maybe this is how it always is for an author when they read their own work because it's it's not fresh to them or it's it's not going to be able to surprise them but that didn't last too long Right, and I think that's actually a, a quite common reaction. You think, oh, well, this is a, I'm finding this a little bit tedious, but if, if I was reading it for the first time, if I wasn't the writer, I would find it utterly absorbing. And I think, that, I think the truth is that 
when our when we've written something good and we reread it, we do find it absorbing. And um, when we've written something less good, we actually notice that even if we try not to. Right. Um, is there a, a period of time now that you know how to write a novel? Is there a period of time that you have to set it aside and say, I'll read it again in a week? Or can you read it, you know, the next day and, and decide whether the, the page or of fiction is working? Setting it aside, I have to confess, is always very helpful. I mean, I mm-hmm. bemoan these periods when, for one reason or another, I don't get to my desk. But in retrospect, they're often very fruitful for helping me to see what what I have and have not accomplished. But I will confess, I'm shamelessly dependent on my dear friend, Andrea Barrett, and mm. I sent her who's a wonderful novelist and short story writer, and I send her everything I've written and say, give me a gladiatorial response. (laughs) And is she able to do that? She is, yes. Um, She's a wonderful, wonderful reader. And, um, but she seems so, she seems so nice and so kind. I, I, uh, I'm glad to hear it sounds like she's able to be honest when you need it. Extremely nice and kind, and sometimes it can take you a moment to notice that she's pointing out that the first <laughs> seven chapters are superfluous, <laughs> because she's saying it just so, so nicely. <laughs> right. Well, that sounds perfect. It sounds like, uh, and do you do you do the same for her? Does she send you uh, work that she, she needs an opinion on? She does send me work, and I feel lucky to in, get to inhabit her work at various stages, and I think the important thing is is really being that we're able to have a certain kind of conversation mm-hmm. about what we're what we're trying to what we're aiming for what we're hoping for what the problems are right um, well sharing our brains what what I was left with after reading your experience with Oubliette, I it made me think first of all what a writer really needs is persistence. And you seem to have had that from the beginning. You wrote it was hundreds of pages long. You you doggedly revised it. You were you were not giving up and you showed that you could kind of see it through. But then the other quality that a writer really needs is self-honesty. And it seems like that was a maybe a harder lesson to learn, but one that you definitely came out of the experience with. That that was a very hard lesson to learn and you know, I think, like many people, I shared the illu- I shared the illusion that um, because I'd come to reading and writing so early, if I just turned my time and intelligence to a novel, I would be able to write something. Um, and it was uh, humbling to realise just how very much I had to learn and how writing my, you know, critical essays at university had really in no way prepared me for trying to write a novel. Right. It prepared me to have, you know, theories about Dorothea and Mr. Casabon or <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, but um, it hadn't made me understand the accomplishment of their authors. Right. Well, it, it probably has also made you a better teacher because I'm guessing that a lot of students walk into the door and they're so invested in their work and they feel like, a judgment on their fiction is like a judgment on themselves or their artistry or their point of view or anything like that. And and 
for you to be able to recognize in them someone who maybe is is on their way but maybe isn't there yet seems like it would be easier than someone who maybe had immediate success yes i think i i think i am a poster girl for delayed success yes <laughs> um, and yeah and no i do feel great empathy with with the young writers i meet because i know how much you can want something mm. and um, mm -hmm how hard it can be to see your own work. And, and then apart from all that, there's, there's, there's really quite a lot of luck in the artistic life. I mean, sometimes you find just the right material and you find just the right form and everyone, you know, appreciates it and all those things come together. But that doesn't happen by any means all the time. It's often just much more of a search. Right. And then you came out of the experience of the oubliette and you found some some solace or or actually I don't think that's the right word, but you, you turned to short stories and you were able to use that to get a better grip on the craft of writing fiction. Is that the right way to put it? That's entirely the right way to put it. I mean, when I discovered short stories, I mean, really both as a reader and as a and as a writer, it was incredibly helpful. I could try out things in a short story over, you know, 15, 20, 25 pages. And if it was a wild goose chase, it didn't matter quite so much. I had, I could sit down the following week and try a different wild goose chase. Um, right. So it really, exploring a shorter form really enabled me to work at some of the many problems in the oubliette to think about, you know, how did you make a character, how do you make a character walk off the page and mm. what kind of dialogue are, are you going to have in your stories and what sort of narrative voice do you want and how can you give your characters more interesting jobs and more interesting lives and I loved your chapter about characters and I loved how you, it was again, another honest moment where you talked about the characters, how they tend to be in your first drafts and they, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and your, your initial impulse, I think as you're, you're getting it onto the page is to have characters that tend to be described a certain way and do certain things. Yes. I mean, growing up in Scotland where at least in the world of my childhood, almost everyone was, brown-haired and blue-eyed. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to give my, my characters those characteristics. And mm -hmm. um, uh, then I allow them to wear, sometimes to wear glasses. And then they really <laughs> do four things. They look, they turn, they nod, <laughs> and they shrug. And um, not surprisingly, they all seem the same, and uh, nobody can tell them apart. Right. It's like those old computer video games where the, you know, the characters move in kind of this herky-jerky way and they're very crudely drawn and they're the things my my kids will laugh at me when they when I see a game like that and I get really excited because I remember it from 1984 <laughs> or something and they, and they they can't believe how primitive it looks. Right. Yeah. No, that's a very good a, a very good analogy. <laughs> um, so then, and, uh, uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and actually, 
you know, a lot of young writers I meet are in roughly the same situation when it comes to character. They they haven't ever really thought about what brings a character to life on the page. Right. I think this is where a lot of writers, especially young writers or beginning writers, where they, they kind of go in the wrong direction because they'll look at that and they'll say, oh, well, all my characters have brown hair and they're all described as, as mousy brown hair. So in, instead of mousy brown hair, I'm going to say that their hair is like a tree trunk or the color of, you know, and they, they try to avoid the cliche and they, they try to use different vocabulary and different descriptions. But then you end up with all of these kind of quirky sentences and, and quirky character traits, but it doesn't necessarily make the character live and breathe the way that. I think is the end goal. No, I think I think you're absolutely right that the temptation to move characters towards caricatures mm. is is very great and you know you the number of redheads in fiction the number of people with noticeable scars on their faces right <laughs> uh, the number of people with I don't know ex, extra long <laughs> Fingers, or I mean, this right. is just, um, or people who have eccentricities of a very particular kind. Right. And the writer thinks yeah. this will make them vivid, this will make them memorable. And instead, sometimes you end up just thinking about the author more than the actual character. Yes, no, completely. Ian Forster talks so wonderfully about how the ideal is that. Even the minor characters should be capable of becoming round if the plot demands right, it. Right, right. And I think I think that's such a beautiful way of describing what we're what we're seeking for really every character in fiction. Yeah, you describe that in that chapter so well, and it is a great reminder that everyone who is familiar with E.M. Forster's book, uh, Aspects of the Novel, and or maybe not even the book but have just had this handed down to them about how some characters are round and some characters are flat. Forster didn't stop there. He went on and and described uh, the way you use round and flat characters in different ways that makes a lot more sense and seems a lot more useful. Yeah, no, it is, I think, one of the most helpful things about characters, even even now after all those craft books and and it grows very much, I think, out of Forster's own idea that, you know, that the people around him were full of secrets and he could never really know mm. everything about his friends or the people he loved. But that in the ideal novel, you can feel that you know almost everything about a character. Right. But that's not how life is. Right. Life is no. is full of these people that you think of as, oh, this was my my stern uh, history teacher or this was my uh, my kindly postal worker. Everyone is yeah. a little bit flat to us, except for maybe the people we're closest to. But then every once in a while, something will will blossom and you find out that your stern history teacher is actually has a, a completely different side and can be very helpful or or shows you uh, how they have this complexity or this ability to change. Or they go into a rant and break a bracelet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I 
you suddenly think, oh. <laughs> right. And you're <laughs> and it becomes very vivid. It becomes a real person rather than just a uh, a kindly second grade teacher. But now suddenly you have a a real uh, person with <laughs> with some some frustrations and some regrets. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So getting back to the point where you were using uh, short stories to help you figure out how fiction worked and. And basically how to, I'll say again, breathe life into a character or a situation. Uh, what did you still not know about novels and what did you need to learn in order to successfully tackle the novel form? Well, as I talk about in the hidden, describe in the hidden machinery, I started writing a story that I thought was a really very good idea. And it just kept not working as a story. It kept getting longer. And I eventually realized that the psychological arc demanded the space of a, of a novel. And I ended up writing what became my first published novel, Homework. But one of the first responses of my of one of my two editors for that novel was that I had written um, a story writer's novel, that every chapter ended with an epiphany or a revelation or that there was a sense when you got to the end of a chapter, oh, close the book, dear reader. Right. <laughs> um, and I think it just, one of the things that took me, two of the things that took me longest to figure out was how to make a novel that both um, anticipated and remembered, that both looked forward and backward. And to think about how to construct not just short lines of suspense, because I was doing that, pretty well in my chapters, but really not to lose sight of a much longer line of suspense. A longer line of suspense might be, uh, if we if we think of a, a classic work, it might be the education and maturation of an individual character, or it might be the quest that someone is on and whether they'll achieve what they're ultimately trying to get. Or Yes. I, I mean, I think in, you know, for instance, um, the Great Gatsby, you know, the long line of suspense is really will will Gatsby ever get get back together with Daisy? Mm. Um, and, with, and within that, we have many shorter lines of suspense. Will her marriage with Tom Buchanan survive? What will happen between Nick and Jordan? And or thinking of, say, the Underground Railroad. You know, there are many episodes of intense suspense, but. The, long line of suspenses, you know, will will the characters get to freedom? Will right. they ever be in a situation where they're not constantly in terror? Right, right. Uh, okay, so is that something, I mean, do you think that that kind of question has to be in a writer's mind when he or she sets out to write the book, or do you think it can be discovered along the way? For myself, I, when I start a novel, I do usually have a destination, mm -hmm. even though I don't know the route necessarily to that destination. But I have something that I'm aiming for. But I think that, you know, there are certainly quite a lot of writers who write to discover their characters and their material and are very much figuring out the plot as they go along and only only then sort of looking over their shoulders and seeing, oh, so this is what I'm doing and this is what I should be doing next. 
best. I used to, when I used to teach creative writing, I used to ask students to start out by just describing, you know, the the, the writer would come in with the, the short story or the novel chapter that they had worked on and that everyone was workshopping. And I would ask them to start out just by describing what the story was about and to try to do it in a sentence if they could. Gosh, yes. And people sort of objected to it because it's, you end up with a sentence that's a little bit like a, a description of a show in, in TV Guide. Right. And people would say, my work is more complicated than that. It's more complex than that. But I think it was it was very instructive. First of all, it was kind of also my way of not starting the, the workshop by saying, you know, I really didn't like this story. Um, <laughs> right. But, <laughs> I hated the grandmother. Yeah. But it also was really instructive for writers to hear that, other people often, you know, readers often viewed it as the central dilemma or the, the heart of the story was often not something that the author necessarily intended it to be. And what they were hoping that everyone was taking from it was was maybe not something that was even prominent enough to make it into the one sentence. Right. No, it, it's, it's fascinating how what a range of responses you can get. Yeah. Uh, when you ask that seemingly simple question. Right. right. Okay, so we're starting to run out of time a little bit. This has gone very quickly, and I have the 16 golden sovereigns that you gleaned from Shakespeare when you went to Shakespeare. You you ransacked Shakespeare for his secrets, and you, you, you seem to say it's okay to take these 16 golden sovereigns because Shakespeare has a limitless supply, and, and there's no danger in... Uh, in draining him of all of his power or all of his treasure by uh, <laughs> by taking the sovereigns, but I, go ahead. I th- no, I think he's an infinitely renewable resource, like right. a kind of early form of solar energy or something. <laughs> right, and I loved the golden sovereigns. I think there were a few that I would have been able to come up with and many more that were new to me, and I feel like it, it's not only good advice for writers, but but for people who want to understand Shakespeare better. And just the even the very first one was something that I had been kind of thinking about without being able to articulate it, but it was the uh, begin dramatically. Did you get that from King Lear? Was that the one that triggered that for you? I, th- I think both King Lear and Macbeth, um, mm. you, you know, gave, gave me that that sense of just being plunged into a situation I didn't fully understand and would only begin to understand as as the play moved forward. And I really loved that. And I loved the way that Shakespeare thought his first job was to grab your attention, to entertain you. And then he could explain later. Right. And so many novels, it made me realize how many contemporary novels might start out with a an interesting sentence to kind of grab the reader, but then it quickly goes into exposition or backstory or or a flashback or kind of a gloss on the sentence without giving yes. you like a really dramatic scene. It, it builds to the scene, but it doesn't start with the scene. Yeah, no, it's really interesting for modern writers, I think, to study a great author who has no flashbacks. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And of course, he does. He does allow his characters to remember things, but he he never does that thing of 
taking you to a dramatic moment and then saying, okay, now we're going to remember something for five pages. Right, right. And the scene, I mean, in Lear, the scene, I guess it's the scene where they're dividing up the kingdom and you see all of the characters right on stage and you you don't need to be introduced to all of them kind of one by one before they get into the room, but you just go along with the action. It's very powerful and gripping. And the stakes are already very high mm. because, mm-hmm. you're, because you're, you're already intuiting that Lear is mistaking his bad daughters for, his, for good daughters. As you were going through the Golden Sovereigns, is that the kind of place in the book where you would think, I'd better check my own work and make sure I've got at least... <laughs> at least some of these 16 golden sovereigns that I'm carrying out? No, completely. And I think that, <laughs> that, that you know, Shakespeare, and in fact, I think, I think there are some thriller writers who, who are also are very suggestive to literary writers, you know, that they just plunge you into action and let the action reveal the characters and propel them forward. And, I think he's just an, a fantastically good role model for that. Mm. And also such a great model for reminding us that people and characters exist in relation to each other. And, right. You know, we have our kind of roles, if you will, or our position in society, to put it rather pompously. I met a woman once who had struggled for years writing novels and had never been able to crack the code or the the hidden machinery and they, they all they were long and and kind of ponderous and then i saw her after a few years time and she was now a successful novelist and she the way she did it was she wrote a mystery which she was doing for oh, money interesting yeah yeah and the way she put yeah. it was she said i i finally put a body on the first page <laughs> and which was, you know, her way of of getting the mystery genre rolling. But but then I think what she realized was she could turn back to literary fiction and see how putting that body on the first page, what you know, and having the detective called in to to analyze the the body and then try to figure out, you know, it, it was a way of teaching her story and suspense. And yes, she was able to apply those lessons back to literary fiction then. Yeah, no, I, I mean, when I had a period of um, commuting by car to Bowdoin College in Maine, I would listen to quite a lot of books like Elmore Leonard that mm. I probably wouldn't sit down and read. But some, some of his novels were just so taut and so well constructed. Yeah, and he has that great lesson of leave out anything that you that the reader that will bore the reader <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah. he's very good on boredom yes <laughs> okay so i have a surprise bonus question for you oh the bonus question okay i'm psyched okay good uh desperate for cash you reply this is probably not a good way <laughs> it's probably not a good way for any story to start <laughs> desperate for cash, okay. but here you are. Desperate, <laughs> right. desperate yeah. for cash. You reply to an internet ad looking for, quote, creative writing instructors with a sense of adventure and a willingness to travel. The next thing you know, you are meeting with someone who is probably a madman, but who has informed you that he has developed a time machine and wants to send you back to earlier time periods to help young students with their fiction writing. 
Reluctantly, you agree. On your first stop, you find yourself in a small English village in 1790, and your class only has one student, a shy but confident 15-year-old named Jane Austen, who has started writing novels and who would like your opinion and advice on her earliest manuscripts. Do you read her manuscript, confident that you will be able to provide commentary that will help her become an even greater novelist than the Jane we know today? Or do you tell her, Jane, trust me, you will be just fine. Don't worry about a thing. You will figure it all out. Just turn around and forget you ever came here today. <laughs> what an amazing question. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just really, really confounded. I will say that I'm completely torn because, you know, Jane did not start publishing her work until until I think she was in her 30s. Yeah. And, um, you know, she died at 41. Yeah. So, you know, she had a lot of rejection um, before the satisfaction of seeing her world out in the world. Yeah. And, um, you know, perhaps the right writing teacher could have helped her open the door a little bit sooner. Yeah. And that but, could be you. Um, and it could be me, <laughs> thanks to your time machine. <laughs> um, so, I think, so I think that's a very tricky one. If you'd said, I'm going to transport you back to Stratford and Avon, where there's a struggling young actor who's, who, thinks he, who thinks he'll write a play, I would say absolutely not. Yeah. I'd just tell him to go home immediately. <laughs> but with Jane, um, yeah, I'm very, I'm very, very torn. Yeah. Um, are are you concerned at all that you would say something that would resonate in the wrong way and that you would send her down the wrong path? Well, of course I am. But then I think about, you know, students I'm currently working with. And, right. you know, I, I, I do try very hard to enter into what it is they're trying to do and how and to to build a bridge as it were between what they're trying to do and and something that can appeal to and include more readers right um, and maybe it sounds arrogant i don't know if i'd worry about sending her down the wrong path yeah i think actually what i'd probably do is just enjoy her company because she was meant to be so witty and so caustic about her neighbors <laughs> and uh <laughs> Right. I think it would have been a delight to to just gossip with her. I think that's probably the right answer is to at least read the work. You you could decide at that point whether or not to interfere with any advice or just say we can enjoy the scene and the scene and the scene together and just talk about it. Yes. And and that comes back to what you said about your teaching of creative writing just asking people to describe the work very succinctly that sometimes just having a conversation with a person can be um, e e extremely uh, helpful in letting them see how you've seen the work, how they might see it. You know what I should have built into this question is a, a follow-up where she comes in and you recognize her as part of a workshop and there are, you know, seven, <laughs> seven strugglers <laughs> and then the brilliant young Jane and thinking how fun that would be that the two of you would see in one another uh, sort of recognizing yes. one another. <laughs> well, I'm honored. I'm, this is completely, t 
turned my life around. I'm now going to think that hypothetically in some past life, I might have had the great privilege of sitting down with Jane Austen to discuss her work. <laughs> well, or you could think that in this life, the next person who walks in the door could be the next Jane Austen. And it's up to you to make sure that the person is, is helped along the way. And I, and I do do my best to ensure that's the case. I'm sure you do. And I would say that based on what I've seen in your book, uh, The Hidden Machinery, that everyone who, who crosses your path can benefit from having your, your wisdom and your experience. And for the rest of us, uh, we can just learn from the chapters in here. It's a wonderful read. And I, I found myself actually reading it. There was one point where I was going to tell you, I'm not sure... I think I've read the whole thing, but I wasn't sure because I didn't read, I couldn't read it straight through. I kept dipping in and out and then every page or two would give me so much to think about. I would have to to stop and and gaze off into the distance and then I would think, I've, I've got enough to think about characters now. I better I better switch to one of these other chapters so I can think about a different topic. And it was almost like reading a book of poems or a, a book of philosophy or something. It was, I found it so rich and so, uh, just so wonderful. Entirely lovely thing to say. Thank you. Because, I mean, one of my main ambitions in writing The Hidden Machinery was to make it a book that would, would in some sense, have long and short lines of suspense and would carry the reader along, that it wouldn't feel like reading a textbook or reading a how-to book. Well, I think you've succeeded. Margot Livesey, thank you very much for joining me again on The History of Literature. Thank you very, very much for this wonderful conversation, Jack. As always, I've learned so much from talking to you. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? My thanks to Margot Livesey. Always a pleasure. Oh, wasn't that wonderful? What a treat that was. Run out and buy her book, everyone, The Hidden Machinery. Unless you're Jay. Our writer in training, our creative writer back from Afghanistan, because we are going to send Jay a signed copy of The Hidden Machinery. Compliments of Margot Livesey and the History of Literature podcast. Best of luck to you, Jay. I hope you enjoy the book and find plenty of golden sovereigns to plunder. Its pages are rich. We'll be back soon with our Kafka episode, along with a couple of continents we have barely scratched the surface of thus far Africa and Australia hope to have all those out soon and more Mike Palindrome of course he's <laughs> charging up his batteries <laughs> you can check out his Twitter recommendations at Literature SC a book a day for 10 years is his project that he's undertaken he's up to about, <laughs> to about 300 now only 3300 to go I chime in there once in a while as well mostly to like his picks and sometimes to offer some constructive criticism, and by that I mean rip them apart and expose them for the wayward choices they are. Mike has self-honesty. It just takes me to supply it for him. I don't know exactly how it works. So, let's end there. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.